Uh, so, uh, for those of you that are listening and watching via the internet, along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, we'll do an introduction this morning to verse 15. Uh, as, uh, you know, my normal 20 minutes of preaching won't suffice or whatever. But uh, this is a powerful, powerful verse. And, you know, every Sunday morning we, we have a, a New Testament memory verse. And I trust that you commit those to memory. But this is a verse that you certainly should commit to memory. Now, we're going to read it in context because what people tend to do is lift the verse out of context. But the context is always king. And so it teaches us how we are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. So let's read this, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 17. And if you're here and do not have a Bible, we have Pew Bibles. It's on page 1016. You can follow along with us. I am reading from the New King James. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, and when they defame you as evildoers, they, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So we're going to look at a ready faith, or begin to look at a ready faith this morning, but overall this passage, beginning in verse 13, going through verse 22, is suffering for righteousness' sake. This is um, an evangelistic, um, or a rather an apolog apologetic type of um, verse that teaches us about evangelism. And evangelism almost always leads to some type of suffering. So that's the reason Peter includes it here in this epistle to the pilgrims that were scattered abroad, Asia Minor. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, bless, I pray the reading of your word this morning. We thank you for the testimonies of these uh, students. We thank you for... Uh, Vance and Melita, and for those that uh, led them while they were there at Snowbird, we thank you for their spiritual growth and development, and we pray for that this morning. We do pray, Father, as we begin to unfold this particular passage that you would teach us from your word how to think reasonably. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first slide, if you would, brother. We closed out the message last Sunday looking at verses uh, 13 and 14. There are, in these uh, verses, 13 through 17, there are basically three issues. I introduced two of them last Sunday, uh, but there's a third one here, too. Uh, the first one is the right fear. We closed out the message last Sunday looking at what he says uh, uh, in verses 13 and 14. Do not be afraid of their threats, which is a quote we'll see here in just a moment from Isaiah chapter 8. 
So the right fear, and I mentioned to you that fear is personal for each one of us, that we are afraid of specific situations or circumstances or of people. I was impressed this morning when our, when our youth uh, stood up here before a congregation of individuals and spoke. That's one of the hardest. In fact, it's one of the greatest fears that most people have. But they did an excellent job, and so you need to thank them for that, and you need to applaud them for that because that will carry them uh, quite a ways in their adult life. So circumstances of people. Now, different cultures, and we live, of course, in the Western world. Most of the problems that we have, and I mentioned those, are first world problems. Uh, but different cultures do breed different fears. We don't li uh, live under the regime of communism where we fear as believers whether or not we will be permitted to continue to worship according to the dictates of our hearts or to evangelize. So they're fears. And I mentioned some here in the first world. I talked about job loss. Uh, economic disadvantages, illnesses, loneliness, and death. And, of course, we sometimes fear safe things. Talked about that. And one of the things I mentioned to you is like flying. And uh, some people fear flying. But it's the safest form of transportation. Has been for years. There are a lot of disadvantages to flying, but usually crashing is not one of them. Uh, there are dangerous things that we don't fear, and one of those examples, and just an example, an addictive um, prescription drug. So fear is personal, and fear is something that needs to be adjusted according to what Peter is speaking of here. Now let's look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, and that's, what we're, that's the overall premise of what is being taught here, uh, you are blessed. And this goes back to beginning in verse 8 through verse 12, talking about blessing. But notice what he does. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 12. He takes just a portion of that, and Peter includes it, and he says, And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now, the full quote is this. It's on the overhead. Isaiah writes, Do not say a conspiracy. We live in a time when almost everything that occurs is considered to be a conspiracy theory, and not everything is a conspiracy theory. This is not new. This was written 26, 2700 years ago. And Isaiah wrote, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Him you shall revere. Verse 15 says, Him you shall sanctify. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And in the first world, even among believers, oftentimes this is just totally disregarded. We don't hallow the Lord as we should. Hallowed be thy name, Jesus taught us to pray. We don't Fear the Lord reverentially, as we should, and Peter talks about that in this passage. Nor do we dread death to the point that we fear not being born again. So, again, a prophecy that Isaiah made 26, 2700 years ago that is relevant today. 
persecutions, evil, and sufferings will continue until Jesus returns. So what are believers to do? And that's what Peter answers in verse 15. So we need to have the right fear. Secondly, he says, we need to have a ready faith. And let's read that verse again. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set him apart. Make him who he is, which is holy. And I've preached uh, a number of times on the holiness of God. We forget that. The main primary attribute of what proceeds from the character of God is formulated in his holiness. Everything God is begins with holiness. And everything God is and what makes him separate from you and I is his holiness. So Peter begins by saying you need to set God apart and you need to hallow him in your hearts. So setting Christ apart means that we recognize his absolute sovereignty. I think Melita mentioned that and I think some of the others mentioned that this morning as well. His absolute sovereignty so that we will not fear what befalls us. If you are a child of God, you are cradled with love in the crucible of his holiness. And regardless of what the world may send you away, we are to continue to set him apart. Next slide, if you would, brother. The second thing that this means, it also means that since Jesus is Lord, and he's not just Savior, the New Testament uses the word Lord more than it uses the word Savior. Jesus is Lord. Now, he is Savior. But because he is Lord, we should fear him, not people, places, or circumstances. Even when persecution does come, and it will come, and when suffering befalls us, when it does ensue, believers are not to be intimidated. You think Peter's intimidated here? Now, he was intimidated at the trial of Jesus, for he cursed and swore that he did not know the man from Galilee, but not now. So something occurred in the life of Peter. Believers are not to be intimidated, and we're not to succumb to the wrong type of fear. We talked about right fear. I closed out last Sunday morning with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung four days before Germany surrendered uh, in uh, April of 1945 in World War II. And he said this, those who are afraid of men have no fear of God. And those who fear God have no more fear of men. This was supposedly the last statement when they asked him to make a statement. If he had one, this is what he said before he was hung. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This is the responsibility of every Christian. In the Proverbs, Solomon wrote this, As a man thinks in his heart, so 
is he? I have the reference here to 1 Samuel 13, 14. We talk about David, and one of the, one of the uh, uh, characteristics of David was he was a man after God's own heart. Well, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, it actually states that the Lord has sought for himself. This is Samuel telling Saul. And the verse begins by saying, the Lord has removed the kingdom from you, Saul. And the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. So what does that mean? Because Peter says here, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. So there is a, a heartfelt concept in the Bible that is defined from Old Testament through New Testament. Jesus spoke about it as well. And the th concept is that our thoughts determine how we live. It's not really that simple. But what we do find in the Scripture and what we know naturally, what we should know supernaturally through Scripture and what we know naturally being uh, sinners, is that uh, the, in mind here is the thinking that goes beyond the intellect and it penetrates the core of our humanity. And that thinking takes its root in our heart. Not physically, but as a metaphor that is mentioned several times in Old Testament and in New Testament. So Peter says, set the Lord apart. Consecrate in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ. This becomes an act of devotion. In fact, he'll talk about um, uh, that uh, in the, uh, not only in the end of this particular verse, but in the next two verses as well. This is a priority of the heart. Where does your affection lie? Where is the primary focus of your affection? Your heart's affection. affection. Is it your spouse? Is it your family? Is it your children? Is it your mom and dad? Where does your affection, where's the primary focus of your heartfelt affection? And so what Peter is spelling out for us is the priority of the heart over the mind. And we're going to speak to this as we, in fact, uh, probably the next one or two slides and then we'll close because it becomes very much in depth. We'll come back to it at a later time. But the priority of the heart over the mind is spelled out here in this text. The mind needs to think about sanctifying, and then we often don't remember to sanctify, and then we say, oh yeah, I need to do that. And the reason we do that is because the heart is not involved. It has become a mental thing, but not a heart thing. Thing. Paul said to, in Romans chapter 12 that we are to present our bodies. Now, I don't know about you, but you can't have a complete body without a mind, and you can't have a complete body without a heart. You may have a shell, but without the mind, 
you're not thinking, and without the heart, you're not living. Peter says that the first thing that we must do to grow in our faith is to set our heart in devotion to Jesus Christ. This begins when we're born again, and it never ends. Now, it may wax and wane. It's done that in my life. No doubt it's done it in your life. But it begins when we're born again. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you cannot set your heart in devotion to Jesus Christ. You have not been moved by the Spirit to have the Spirit reveal the true nature of who Jesus is. And that's part of what Peter is talking about here in this particular verse. The primary focus of the heart should motivate the mind to consecrate Christ. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. Last verse of chapter 3. Let's read verse 21 and 22. Now, the first part of verse 21 is, is uh, as I've mentioned to you, is difficult. We'll, uh, we'll interpret that as we come to it. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, he mentions conscience in verse 16. So that's a repeated theme. But a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why do we consecrate Christ as Lord? The resurrection. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God angels, authorities, and powers. Authorities and powers, authorities have to do with those that, that uh, rule on earth, and powers have to do with demons. Angels, those that rule on earth, and demons, having been made subject to him. We have no fear, of earthly authorities, nor are we to fear the devil and his angels. Next slide. <clears throat> so what does Peter mean when he, he talks about a ready faith? Be ready to answer the question. The first thing here is ready to answer, and the second thing is a reason for hope. So we're going to cover maybe the number one here this morning. That's as far as we'll get today. But I want you to look back at this passage. He says, always be ready to give a defense um, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So this ties together. Be ready to answer because there's a reason for hope. So, the word ready for answer there comes from the word, uh, a Greek word from which we get the word apology, which we have morphed into apologetics, which means a defense of the faith. Now, let's step aside for a moment. Let's talk about Peter. Peter was not the intellect that Paul was. He was a fisherman. That doesn't mean that he was 
uh, dumb. It just means he was not exposed to the education that the Apostle Paul was. What Peter had learned, he had learned through the school of hard knocks. And all we need to do is read the Gospels and we will find that. What Peter learned through the school of hard knocks, he applied to his life in the first ten chapters, basically, of the book of Acts, teach us about the opening ministry and foundation of Christianity through Jesus Christ when Peter was used to preach. So, that said, Peter was still a thinker. All of the authors of the Bible were thinkers. They were not writing emotionally. They were writing to give a defense of who God is in Jesus Christ through faith. Acts chapter 21, Paul says, I am ready as he stood before Festus. Paul said, I am ready now to give a defense. That's the word from which we get the word apology. Now, this is not asking for an apology. This is not being sorry. This is a defense. And that's the gathering, or the writing, rather, that Peter has force in store here. Paul also will mention this in the book of Philippians. We just finished studying Philippians in, uh, in our Sunday school class. In verse 7 and in verse 17, he talks about being ready to give a defense. And he's talking to a church. He said, I was ready to give a defense, and you as a church, Flat Creek family, need to be ready to give a defense. So apologetics can be defined as the defense of the Christian faith, which uh, basically in a summary, and this is not all of it obviously, but it's a good portion of it, the fact that through Scripture alone and through God's grace alone, we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone so that God alone receives the glory. And we've been teaching that uh, your congregation here at Flat Creek that for a number of years. So there's two things at play. Apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. Polemics is the task of criticizing and refuting alternative views. So Peter is saying not only are you to defend the faith, you are to refute alternative views. This is what is taught in debate classes, by the way. The ability to defend and the ability to refute. They go together. Both are necessary to positively define the Christian faith in a reason, uh, is a reasoned faith. It, are emotions involved? Yes, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. God created us to be emotional beings. But that emotion is also to proceed and understand that our faith can be reasoned. Now, the reasoning does not save. But the reasoning can lead us to Jesus who saves. Faith doesn't save. Jesus saves. It is faith in Jesus that saves us. 
Both are necessary. One, to define the Christian faith uh, as a reasoned faith and to criticize. Yes, we're responsible to do this. To criticize and repudiate a view of the world that is contrary to Scripture. And that is everywhere today. We're called to do this. The church is called to defend the faith and to criticize anti-truths, lies about the Christian faith, and to repudiate them. R.C. Sproul, who went home to be with the Lord about five or six years ago, and I've got several quotes by him uh, that we'll read this morning, but I want you to, uh, to read what he says, what he wrote. And he wrote this in a book entitled Classic Apologetics. He says, when it comes to the Christian faith, we have to affirm the priority of the heart and the mind. Now, Peter talks about the heart and the mind. Each holds a top priority in a different sense. In the final analysis, it is the disposition of our heart towards the things of God that weighs more heavily than the correctness of our theology. Now, when I first read this, I said, that's a strange statement from Dr. Sproul, knowing that he is, his uh, life's work was to correct inerrant theology. But he goes on to explain. Next slide. In James, who was a half-brother of our Lord, James wrote this. He says, you believe there's one God? Now, he's writing to primarily Hebrew people. You believe in monotheism. Big deal, he said. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I would dare say that of all of the creatures that God has made, the one that probably is most theologically correct is Satan. But it has never, ever changed. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, Satan quoted scripture. It's never changed him. His sin has turned him insanely jealous of the Trinity. You believe there's one God, you do well. But that's not a big deal, James says, because even the demons believe, and they tremble. Sproul goes on. So although the priority of the heart is first in importance, the priority of the mind is first in sequence. We think about something before the heart is moved. In other words, the truth of God cannot get into our hearts unless it is first processed by the mind. Our heart cannot embrace what the mind finds unintelligible. 
And he says it is important to make that distinction because if we divorce the heart from the mind and try to get to the heart by bypassing the mind, we are left with blind emotionalism that has no valid content to it. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago when we get to Second Peter, we'll spend some time talking about artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence has the ration, but doesn't have the heart. And that's one of the things that we need to be careful of. He goes on. There are many attempts to do just that in contemporary worship, to appeal to feeling without thought. Some say it doesn't matter what we believe as long as we have a warm feeling in our heart for Jesus. People say, I have no creed but Christ. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you embrace Jesus. So he is, he is expanding on the fact of what he talked about in the previous slide. But he writes, the bubble is burst as soon as we ask the question, who is Jesus? The moment we try to answer that question and say something intelligible about Jesus, we are engaged with thinking. And our mind is brought in to that matter. Blind emotionalism cannot convince you of who Jesus is. The Spirit of God uses the Word, which is intelligible, to convince us of who Jesus is. One more slide. John Geiger, in a book that he wrote a number of years ago, Kingdom and Community, The Social World of Early Christianity, states that the early church, and Peter is writing to the early church. Paul wrote, James wrote, the gospel's written to the early church. He said the early churches faced intellectual and cultural ridicule from Romans and Greeks. Because of such attacks, it threatened the eternal cohesion within the church and the church's evangelistic boldness toward unbelievers. They were attacked. They were persecuted. They were ridiculed. They were laughed about. Eventually... They became martyrs. He goes on to argue that it was primarily the presence of apologists within the church. And this proceeded out of the apostles and to Justin Martyr and Polycarp, those that followed the, uh, the apostles. The presence of apologists within the church that enhanced the Christian faith because they demonstrated that Christians... Now keep this in mind. Christians were as rich 
intellectually and culturally as the pagan community of the world. Does that sound familiar? Here we are 2,000 years removed, and the Christian faith is under attack, perhaps uh, as uh, soundly or as strongly as it was 2,000 years ago when Peter wrote this particular verse. Evangelical Christianity is today believed to be focused on either Christian nationalism or social idealism rather than a robust, positive defense of what it means to be a born-again believer. Not emotionalism. Well, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, and Jesus saved me. That's wonderful. I was saved when I was seven. I didn't understand all the rationale behind myself. I don't understand uh, much more of it today, but I do understand that there is a reason for the hope that lies within me. A robust, positive defense of what it means to be a born-again believer. And a well-thought-out criticism of the cultures opposed to the gospel of Christ Jesus. We are the defense of the faith. Church, the flat Greek family. We are the bastion. We are the palace in whom resides the saved saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our responsibility to offer a robust, reasoned defense and criticize what the world, how the world lies about the church. Jesus did this very thing. Paul did, Peter did, James did. And we are no less responsible. So when I ask you this question this morning, we'll close with this. John Calvin, again, Calvin gets a lot of lies, a lot of lies about Calvin. You need to study his, his life. You need, need to read the Institutes, 2,000 pages, before you start making accusations against John Calvin. Our systematic theology that we believe today was set aside by John Calvin. Okay. John Calvin, before every sermon that he preached in Geneva, said this. He said, is the gospel sweet to you today? At the close of every sermon, he asked that same question. Is the gospel sweet to you today? He went on to say, if the gospel is not sweet, you need to examine yourself and see whether or not you're in the faith. Let's pray that through the Spirit of God, through our 
exposure to the word through our submission and through our uh, kindness to those that have genuine questions that we can give a robust positive defense of the faith and if needed also to be willing to be critical of cultures that few lies about believers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the word. There's so much in this passage of scripture, Lord Jesus. But it begins with we are to sanctify, we are to set, of, set aside the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. Forgive us when we don't do that. Forgive us when there's so many distractions in the world, so many things that vie for our attention. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, and then fill us with your spirit again so that we may find the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, sweet. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. I want to thank our young people and the chaperones for their testimony this morning. We're going to sing one verse of a hymn to close this morning. If you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then there's no reason for hope within you. But that can change, and it can change this day. As we sing, if the Lord's moved in your heart, you recognize that you're a sinner without hope. Christ alone can give you that hope. He desires to give you the hope, and he will. Now, you have a number of things. You can either make your way out of the pew this morning. We can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, or at the close of the, of the uh, service this morning, if you want to see me or Vance or someone else and talk further about this, We'll be willing to do that. If the Spirit of God moves in your heart this week, my email address, my phone number's there. You can text me. I'll be glad to talk with you. But we want you to understand that Jesus does love you. He desires that you come to the saving knowledge of him. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. You know the Lord will save you, but uh, perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that. As a child of God, this is just the beginning uh, of this particular uh, passage, but it is, uh, it's, uh, it's powerful in the fact that it re-institutes uh, re uh, or reconfirms that you and I as believers are responsible to do this. Not just the pastor, not just the teacher. Everyone is responsible to, to provide a reasoned defense for your faith. So remember that this week. What number, Brother Vance? 334. 334.